Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the U.S. drops its charges and extradition request from Canada for Chinese executive Meng Wanzhou. What will it mean for Canada-China relations and two Canadians imprisoned in China? We'll hear from a former Canadian ambassador to Beijing. With the federal election now behind him, Prime Minister Trudeau says it's time to get back to the business of governing. Our journalist panel will look at what will be on the government's agenda and what's in store for Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. But we start with an announcement with big repercussions for Canada-China relations and the fate of two Canadians, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, imprisoned in China. The U.S. Justice Department on Friday announced a deferred prosecution agreement in the case of Chinese high-tech executive Meng Wanzhou. That means that Canada is dropping its extradition of her to the U.S. to face charges of fraud. Over the past three years, my life has been turned upside down. It was disruptive time for me as a mother, a wife, and a company executive. But I believe every cloud has a silver lining. It really was an invaluable experience in my life. I will never forget all the good wishes I've received from people around the world. As the saying goes, the greater the difficulty, the greater the growth. Once again, thank you so much. The big question now, though, is what that might mean for those two Canadians who are widely considered to be held hostage by China as retaliation for the Meng Wanzhou case. Joining me now is Guy Saint-Jacques, a former Canadian ambassador to China. Monsieur Saint-Jacques, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, I'd like to get your reaction to this news of this deferred prosecution agreement. How do you react? Does it come as a surprise to you? Well, it's a bit of a surprise because I was not expecting that uh, the, the both sides would be able to reach an agreement. Uh, we, we know that they had started negotiations back in December. Uh, at that time, uh, Mrs. Mang refused to admit any guilt. But I think what has happened since then is that uh, there was probably pressure on both sides, uh, uh, in fact, on, uh, on the tree side, because Ottawa must have been very active trying to convince Washington uh, to uh, revise its uh, uh, position. We know that Ambassador Barton went to Washington back uh, in April. Uh, we know also, I think, that uh, both Washington and Beijing uh, were trying to uh, uh, find a way to resolve this because uh, this had become a major impediment in their relationship, which is already very complicated. So I assume in this case, it's the U.S. Department of Justice that has reduced its uh, expectation. Maybe also they have followed the uh, hearings uh, that were conducted by uh, Justice Holmes, and maybe they said, well, we better try to strike a deal at this stage rather than risk, uh, uh, who knows, a decision whereby she would have been uh, uh, released. So, okay, so in other words, a very real possibility that the, uh, her deport or extradition trial here in, uh, in Canada might not actually go forward. Yes, and because I base this on some of the comments made by Justice Holmes at 
found that some of the arguments brought forward by the uh, Department of Justice were a bit weak. Also, there was this question whether the rights of Mrs. Meng were not respected when she was arrested. So I think maybe there was a, a 30 percent chance that she would have said that uh, she should be released on that basis. And so all this to say that this would be very good news. Uh, this is very good news because uh, that means then that it opens the door to try to negotiate the uh, deportation of our two Canadians. Okay, I want to get to that in a second. But I w want to ask you, what do you think, um, you say obviously this is a result of pressure that's been brought to bear on, in three different directions. Um, but what do you think of the fact that it's taken this long in the first place? A lot of people were surprised. And I remember reading in Forbes magazine, which tracks these kind of corporate uh, charges. And this is exceedingly rare that uh, an executive is actually charged. Um, it's usually the corporations that are charged and executives get off on these deferred, uh, deferred prosecution agreements all the time. They said there's something like only 1% of cases where executives are actually charged. Was this sort of Donald Trump's style of doing things? Well, I think it was a style he wanted to, uh, to add pressure on China. And of course, in this case, uh, uh, the, the Chinese were infuriated to see that uh, Mrs. Meng, which is uh, uh, royalty in, uh, uh, in China, uh, because her father, Ren Zhengfei, is someone that uh, is very well regarded, very close to the leadership in Beijing. And uh, there were other cases, like the, the one of uh, ZTE, which was uh, fined about a billion dollars uh, some four years ago. And, and, and I think what happened after that is that uh, uh, on the Chinese side, they were not very clear how long this whole process would take. And uh, now uh, oh, uh, the good news is that uh, compromises uh, were made and a solution was found. Okay. Um, let, let me ask you, you mentioned the possibility of the uh, release of the two Michaels. How confident, how much of a linkage can we make then? Uh, is there a possibility that this might not have uh, an immediate effect in terms of uh, the freeing of the two Michaels uh, who have been held almost three years now in China? Yeah, I, well, I think it will take uh, uh, a little, little bit more time. Uh, and I think that China will want to extract something from Ottawa. Uh, what uh, will need to happen is uh, they will have first to uh, give the sentence to Michael Kovic because this has not taken place yet. But uh, is uh, the wording of his sentence will include the possibility that he be deported. Mm -hmm. And then it will be a matter of, uh, I would say, probably uh, senior officials to go to Beijing to negotiate the, uh, the release. Uh, this is what happened back in September 2016 when uh, uh, we negotiated the uh, uh, the release of uh, Kevin Garrett. But I hope that as part of the discussion that uh, have been taking place between Washington and Beijing and between Ottawa and Beijing, that there is at least uh, an agreement in principle that the two Michaels will be freed. And let's remember that the Chinese ambassador himself had said that uh, uh, there was a link there. This was the previous ambassador, Lu Xiaoye, who said that, and I, I think that uh, the Chinese uh, uh, government would be uh, criticized uh, around the globe if they were not to uh, release the two Michaels in, uh, uh, in uh, the short term.
There's been, um, as you know, I mean, the Canadian government has rallied other governments around the world in this movement to try and denounce what it calls and what more than 50 countries have called arbitrary political arrests. Uh, and we've been leading the charge in the hope that it would help put pressure on Beijing to release our two Michaels. Um, do you think this is a victory in terms of China behaving differently, or is this just a victory of negotiations and backroom deals and diplomacy? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, clearly, this was uh, uh, the one part of the Canadian strategy that was very successful. Uh, Beijing was not expecting that we would be able to rally uh, such uh, support because we know that many leaders raised the case of the two Michaels in meetings with uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. Uh, but uh, still, uh, the, 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 the concrete uh, uh, details related to the uh, release uh, and the return of Mrs. Meng and the uh, deportation of the two Canadians had to be uh, negotiated. But I think all this has uh, taught a lesson to Beijing, uh, especially after the adoption of this declaration against uh, hostage-taking by states. Uh, I think they, uh, they should be, they, they will think twice in the future before uh, using this kind of tactic. So you think that this might actually change the behavior of the Chinese regime? I would hope so. And I think we have to think about other ways to uh, reinforce this. Uh, for instance, the, the, it, uh, I would hope that Ottawa works with the, the signatories of that declaration to operationalize uh, the, uh, uh, what would happen if uh, China were to uh, take someone else uh, hostage. Okay, Monsieur Saint-Jacques, uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, thank you. It's time now to look at the week's events in federal politics in the wake of Monday's federal election and with the news about the Wang Wanzhou uh, case. Joining me now are three journalists and avid Ottawa watchers. Bob Fife is the Ottawa bureau chief for The Globe and Mail. Mia Rabson is a parliamentary reporter with the Canadian Press. And Negan Sinclair is an author and a columnist with the Winnipeg Free Press. All three of you, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, Bob, uh, Bob Fife, we have to start with you because obviously you and the, your colleague Steve Chase at the Globe and Mail have been following this Meng Wanzhou story and the Canada-China relations in great detail for years now. Um, we have this deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, what does it mean for the fate of Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig uh, in prison in China now for more than a thousand days? Well, I think we should be optimistic that now that they have a deferred prosecution agreement, that uh, Mr. Kovark and Mr. Spavor will now be able to be free. Or how soon that is going to happen, uh, it's difficult to say. Martin, I've heard people say it's possible that they could be freed by the end of October. Uh, other people saying it might be a bit longer. Uh, China has done this before with the Garrets when they conducted hostage dipl um, uh, diplomacy, really, mm -hmm. and it took them a couple months before they released the Garrett. So okay. I think we have to be, uh, our best wishes is hoping that it, it can happen um, very soon, but it could still be a couple of months. But I think it's clear that they are going to be freed, and that's got to be enormous relief to the families. Okay. What about politically, a relief to the Trudeau government? It's a huge relief to the Trudeau government. Uh, they have been trying since uh, two, December 2018, when those two men were first arrested on trumped-up uh, spying charges, to uh, get them released. And it wasn't just that. I mean, China had put on some uh, punishing uh, trade sanctions against us. It basically froze us out. 
And uh, but the worst of obviously were the conditions that these two men faced in uh, being put in Chinese prisons with uh, lights on 24/7, while Miss Meng lived in a 14 million dollar mansion in in Vancouver. Now, you know they've been working very hard, and in, in, in the final days of the Trump administration. The uh, U.S. Justice Department tried to get a uh, deferred prosecution agreement with Ms. Monk. She refused to do so because they wanted her to plead guilty. Um, in, uh, in April of this year, our, chi our ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, had gone to Washington and met everybody to try to get the process going. Mm -hmm. And just in the last few weeks, the U.S. Depart uh, Justice Department resumed negotiations and they've got a deferred prosecution agreement, one in which he doesn't have to plead guilty, mm -hmm. uh, but there are other conditions to it. All of this means that uh, from the Canadian government's point of view, the Biden administration has really delivered for Canada. And let's hope that those two men are out soon. Mm -hmm. Mia, I mean, following the election campaign, this was actually a central, it was a, a key plank in the Conservatives' criti the critique of the, of the Liberal or the Trudeau government, uh, saying that they had been, they've handled China affairs very badly. And one of the best examples was support the two Michaels who are, you know, imprisoned in China as hostages, basically, of the Chinese uh, regime there. Uh, how do you think this will play politically for the uh, Trudeau Liberals? Well, I'm certain, certain that they're extremely relieved that this agreement is now in place. These negotiations that, as Bob mentioned, have been going on for quite some time, finally coming to some kind of conclusion and maybe, hopefully, for the two Michaels, uh, for Mr. Sfavor, Mr. Kovrig's uh, sake and his their families, that this will result in their release. I don't think anyone's going to see this as a victory. I mean, these two men have been in, in prison in China for a thousand days plus now. Uh, anybody who would see this as a victory is, is probably not going to be uh, well received. But it's also affected that how the government's been able to handle China because they had to take into account how their the Canadians in prison in China would be treated or how that might be affecting their case in every decision that they have made about China policy. Even the U.S., uh, the new ambassador coming incoming ambassador has said this week that the U.S. is waiting to see what Canada's China policy is. And all of that seems to have been a bit on hold because they don't know, they didn't know what was going to happen yeah. in this particular case. So in some ways, this conclusion really just opens it up for Canada to start really thinking ahead on how it and its allies can work with its allies on China. Nigan, it makes me think of an expression between the cup and the lips. There's often many spilled drops. We're still waiting for this all to come through. And some observers, even today, are, are suggesting that the Chinese government might hold out for, I don't know, more preferential treatment in terms of the Huawei 5G network. We've made it fairly clear that we're probably not interested in getting involved in the Huawei 5G network. Is, is there still a potential jeopardy to the, the, to the Trudeau government and the Liberal government? And also the fact that, you know, during this federal election campaign, there was all these promises made to ban people for buy, buying homes out in the west side of the west coast. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a kind of an ongoing challenge in the Canadian public around the relationship with China, and that certainly came out in the last federal election. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge here is, is how fast can we release, get the, secure the release of the two Michaels? Because the fact is, I mean, Bob is right. I mean, the situation you can only imagine what it's like to live breathe and eat inside of a chinese jail yeah. while ming Wazhu is sitting in a 14 million dollar land mansion in vancouver i mean talk about the tale of two countries and the ways in which politics operates and the ways that uh, diplomacy operates and yeah certainly uh, president biden and his administration deserves a bit of uh, 
uh, kudos for getting this moving. But you know, this 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 goes harkens back to the days of Donald Trump, and it shows that the impact of Donald Trump, as we're seeing with the Supreme Court in the United States, is beginning to take effect across the world. Has deep, deep waves that are going to continue throughout global politics for years to come. And, you know, how will Canada handle this? Well, it's helpful to Trudeau in the opening days of his minority parliament to get a win on some kind of issue, some kind of major issue, because certainly the concern coming out of Afghanistan is that they don't have any role to play internationally or they don't have any say and the ability to navigate that those international issues. So this will certainly be helpful for the Trudeau Liberals going moving forward. Okay, let's talk about the federal election. It feels like weeks now, even although it's only been four days. But so much, we've already been pouring over the tea leaves. So much has been said. So much has been discussed. There's been a lot of analysis. But I want to give all three of you a chance to weigh in on with your reactions. Um, generally, where do you think this leaves Justin Trudeau? And what should be on his to-do list as he gets... He's, he said on election night that Canadians have told him it's time to get back to work. Bob. Well, look, uh, the... The Prime Minister's political capital, his political brand has been uh, damaged and, and, and diminished by calling an election that really ended up with basically the same result. Uh, he's going to have to try to explain that to his caucus. Now, he's not in danger, I don't think, uh, of any kind of caucus uprising. Uh, but he, he's probably not going to be around for the next election campaign. He has a couple of years now to burnish his credentials and uh, to try to uh, have something for the history books, which I think can be childcare and can be climate change. Uh, but he's going to have to be very careful because if there's another WE charity scandal or another SNC Lavalin scandal, his caucus is not going to be there to, uh, to uh, buff him up uh, because there are already a leadership contenders lying in wait. Uh, Krista Freeland, obviously, the finance minister and deputy prime minister, Mark Carney, I think, is still interested. And obviously, people like uh, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne and uh, perhaps Melanie Jolie, there are people there that will be willing to step in if, if Mr. Trudeau stumbles. So uh, I think he should be focusing on now is trying to uh, deal with the, the major issues facing the country, which is climate change. Mm -hmm. And obviously, uh, uh, reconciliation with Canada's uh, Indigenous people. Uh, those are very important things. And, of course, the economy. I mean, the economy is really important once we get through what we hopefully will be the, the last dregs of this pandemic and we can get the economy back uh, back in, in, instead and, uh, and people back working. Okay, Mia, uh, what should the Prime Minister's agenda be and how does he come out of this election? Um, Bob has alluded to the fact that he, he took a bruising and politically he's expended a lot of political capital in calling the election and in barely squeaking through. Uh, what do you make of it? Definitely. I mean, the prime minister went into this election. He wouldn't use the word majority, but everybody else knew that he was doing this because he thought he could get a majority. It was a chance for, for him to have the government that he wanted to have. Didn't end up that way. Uh, he's the one who said going into this election that parliament was broken, that it wasn't working and, and that there sort of needed a reset. And now he's going to have to figure out how to get parliament to work because essentially we have the same Parliament that even might be even more divided than it was uh, because of all of the sort of the outrage over the election and things that have happened in the last uh, few weeks. So I think that's one of his first orders of business is to figure out how he can get his government to work, is he who, who he's going to get to support him. He's got a number of big issues coming, obviously, the child care deals uh, that Bob mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, he wants to cement those uh, with the provinces so that they are long done. 
um, before the thought of any kind of future election. We've got a big climate change meeting coming up. Uh, the G20 is coming up this fall. Canada's sort of appearance and impression uh, reputation globally has maybe also taken a beating in the last few years. Uh, so lots of things on his agenda. And he wants to go out of office on a high note. He's got yeah. to figure out a way to make all of those things work before he decides to take his, as some people call it, walk in the snow. It's interesting you should mention the child care agreement because going into the election, there were two notable outstanding provinces, uh, conservative-run provinces that weren't hadn't signed on to the child care agreement. This week, we had both Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick and uh, Premier Doug Ford in Ontario saying that they're, no, they are working and they are interested in signing a child care agreement with the, the federal government. Uh, Nigan, I'm going to be more specific because I think you and I, I mean, from where we were in the election and from where you are, uh, reconciliation. People talked about reconciliation in this election. Uh, we went into the election with reconciliation being a huge issue. What happened to reconciliation in the election? What happened to, I know we haven't got the results from Elections Canada in terms of the breakdown of Indigenous voters, but what happened to the Indigenous vote in this election? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, just to reiterate what you were saying just a minute ago with Doug Ford, I mean, Doug Ford needs a win there. Uh, he's got an election reach next year. Yep. So he's, he needs a win, which is why he's moving towards a child care plan. Uh, reconciliation. Uh, if anything was proven in this election was two things. First, that Justin Trudeau has a glass ceiling in which his approval rating will not break. And no matter how hard the Liberal Party will try, uh, elements of Alberta, elements of the prairies, elements of even in Atlantic Canada, are turning away or have reached enough of Justin Trudeau. Yeah. And so the Liberals really have to take a look at the brand of their leader and whether that, that they have something moving forward. I'm not convinced that he's not going to be around for the next election, although it may certainly would show that I think if the Liberals want to move, they might want to move in a different direction. Yeah. And the second is that Canadians won't vote for reconciliation. And Canadians are interested more in looking at the ways in which small ornamental areas of reconciliation operate during an election campaign. Okay. And an election campaign isn't the time in which we need to be discussing major issues involving Indigenous peoples, because frankly, no matter who is at the front of that, that equation, there is a very large segment and likely a majority of this country that will not vote for it, particularly in Quebec, particularly amongst the prairies. And so that's the challenge, is how do we then motivate Canada to incorporate what is the just and ethical and responsible thing to do, which is to incorporate Indigenous rights, to begin to co-govern, to return stolen land, much of which Canada is sitting upon, and to begin to have a conversation of what does that look like moving forward into the future. And what does that mean? Well, in the last federal parliament, the last minority government, which was the Liberals propped up by the NDP, the most work was done in history on Indigenous issues, meaning boil water advisories were tackled more than ever in history. Mm -hmm. uh, child care was, uh, was downloaded onto First Nations, uh, or child welfare, sorry. Yep. Um, the issues of Indigenous languages were supported for the first time. So the fact is that we may be looking at a federal government that may work for Indigenous peoples, and this may be the time to have that conversation. But it's interesting, but you say it's not electorally a winner for any party in the federal, given the numbers and all that. On the election night coverage that I worked upon with another network, yep. uh, there I was alongside the uh, David Hurley, who's a uh, poll, poll uh, one of the national poll 
uh, people who work on polling. Anyway, so he works the Hurley Burley podcast, and he said that one of the things that when he goes door to door and he talks to everyday Canadians, that's not an issue that has any traction, that influences people in any way. It certainly is something that Trudeau wants to brand himself as, and maybe in the past government of Stephen Harper, in relation to Stephen Harper, may have gotten some Canadian support. But the fact is that Canadians are not interested in supporting that issue. And what they are interested in is very small, very ornamental things like Orange Shirt Day or memorializing unmarked graves. That's not reconciliation, by the way. That's treating people like human beings. True reconciliation is recognizing Indigenous rights, co-governing the country, and returning stolen land. Okay. That's not a, not a very encouraging observation, but I take your, take your point. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Let's look at another major thing that's come out of this election, and that is Aaron O'Toole and where he stands. Uh, obviously, he didn't have the results the, uh, after having polling ahead of the, having pulled ahead of the, the Liberals for a part of the election campaign. They didn't get the results they wanted. They actually won the popular vote, but they lost seats. Um, Bob, what is Aaron O'Toole facing now? What are you watching for? Well, I think he's in a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, he doesn't have the tools of patronage that Justin Trudeau will have to keep defeated MPs in line with the promise of some government appointment. He's got nothing to keep uh, that caucus in line. And a lot of them are very, very unhappy with the way he conducted the campaign. Uh, they felt that he excluded them on some of the decisions that he made. And they are obviously deeply disappointed that they didn't do as well as uh, Andrew Scheer did the last time. So he's got a real uh, uh, effort inside that caucus to try to pull them together to see if he can save his leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, he First of all, he's got to have his caucus behind him. And then in a year or so's time, he's going to face a, a leadership uh, or a leadership vote mm -hmm. at, at a party convention. So he's got two things to get through. He's got to see if he can survive a caucus. And then he's got to see if he can survive a leadership review vote that is mandatory after an election campaign. Uh, it's going to be really, really tough because a lot of these people are already whispering in all of our ears about how unhappy they are. And I suspect that whispering is going to continue and continue. We've all seen what happens, whether it's the Liberals or the Conservatives, when they're in opposition. Uh, their leaders can be uh, can face a lot of nasty stuff from inside their caucus, and I suspect that's going to happen with him. You know, Pierre Polyev is and Jenny Byrne are, are leading the... Uh, the attack against Mr. O, uh, Mr. O'Toole, and that's going to that they're they're formidable characters. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't put any money on Mr. O'Toole surviving. Okay, well, I guess that's the question, uh, Mia. We know that in two weeks' time, the Conservatives are going to have their first caucus meeting uh, under the rules uh, that they've adopted. What's Michael Chong's Reform Act? Uh, Twenty percent of the caucus can. Uh, precipitate can trigger a uh, leadership review uh, if 20% of the caucus votes uh, to have it happen. Uh, do you think he's going to survive that first post? Honestly, it's it, it, today I couldn't even predict that. Yeah. I mean, two years ago, when Andrew Scheer was sort of in the same position, the Conservatives felt that Justin Trudeau was entirely beatable. He, of course, had several scandals even during the election itself and, uh, and problems. They thought that they could absolutely take him out, and they didn't do it. Two weeks later, with all of the whisperings that went on, he searched, Andrew Scheer survived that vote. Yeah. But the people within the caucus, within the party that wanted him gone, within a few weeks of that, figured out how to get him to go. So it's possible that Aaron O'Toole will survive that vote. 
in, in two weeks and s- still, you know, within a few months, uh, they will figure out a way to to push him out. He clearly knew that this was coming. Even on election night, he he was uh, sort of setting the ground for it. The very next day, starting about talking about electoral policy review and sort mm-hmm. of taking a look at what went wrong and a- acknowledging that this was not the outcome that they wanted. Um, it really depends on how the people within that caucus feel that he's take if he's taking responsibility. But the conservatives are also in a little bit of a sort of identity crisis. Mr. O'Toole tried to bring them back to the center, and there's many who feel that he didn't have the mandate to do that based on his leadership campaign. So a lot of questions within the Conservative Party. I wouldn't be surprised if he does survive uh, in two weeks, um, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they decide to to, to mm-hmm. take him out so that they can immediately get ready uh, for, you know, whenever the next election mm-hmm. happens. Negan Sinclair, you've got a lot of Conservatives in your neck of the woods. There's a whole ring of Conservatives and, and solid blue country uh, outside of Winnipeg. Um, your thoughts on what the Conservatives may or what Aaron O'Toole may or may not be facing? For any conservatives that want to dump Aaron O'Toole uh, simply because he's, you know, within two years of being elected as leader, uh, ran a campaign where, in many cases, people for the first time in really since the days of Stephen Harper, people were actually potentially talking about a conservative minority government. Now, that didn't come to pass, but I can tell you this, 30 ridings in the country were within 2,000 votes. And that tells you that uh, while Aaron O'Toole did not make inroads in Quebec or perhaps Ontario, uh, although I certainly would say that for ridings, per riding per riding had increased, he did have headway in Atlantic Canada. And he also kept on to the vote in Alberta during a time in which Jason Kenney was so deeply criticized and the conservative brand is the worst it's ever been. I mean, he lost in some ridings in Alberta 20 to 30%, which just tells you how firm and how landslide those elections are in Alberta, and he still came out with solid victories across Alberta by moving the party to the center. I think we need to remind conservatives that Andrew Scheer and Stephen Harper um, have done such a impact on the conservative party in central Canada. If they ever want to make inroads in Ontario and Quebec, they need some kind of different direction. Aaron O'Toole tried that different direction. Mm-hmm. Two years is not enough of a time period in which you can make an impact. But you can see that there were elements of that impact potentially occurring. I mean, uh, Francois Legault endorsed the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. I mean, do, do we think that that's not going to have some kind of impact into the future? And if Conservatives want to imagine and go back to uh, the days of the Reform Party and go back to someone like Pierre Polyverb, which is going to just further okay. divide Canadians continue to look as though it's a, a prairie party is just not going to give them a government in the future. Okay, well on that note we're going to have to wrap up. Something tells me we will be revisiting the party fortunes of all of the parties coming out of this election. I want to thank all three of you for taking the time and I think we can have a breath, take a breath now after the election coverage. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you. you. Well that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Martin Stringer. Have a good weekend.